0: Hi, this is Jean Nathan, it is Crosstown Conversations, and um, we as always have some very interesting and informative guests, Um, so I think you'll enjoy it, Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years, and I think um, people tend to appreciate the the information they are getting from us, so here goes for today. Andrew Hurwitz has written a book that I would say is basically intended to shed some very objective light on a more complete story of not just what happened during Katrina and as a result of Katrina, but really how the history of the city, the role that the history of the city played in that particular event and will continue to play in in disasters to come. So Andrew, um, please introduce, first of all, what got you interested in this subject? And by the way, um, I don't think I I mentioned the name and it's, uh, let me make sure I have this correct, Katrina, a history uh, from 1915
1: to 2015. That's the title, yes, and uh, we can be friends and you can call me Andy. So how did I become? Well, I'm uh, born and raised in Connecticut. So I'm not a New Orleanian and this is not my story. You know, history is (laughs) the art of telling other people's stories, I guess. I, for me, Katrina was an experience that was um, televised. I remember in 2005 sitting in Connecticut and watching the levees fail and watching the city that I'd visited a couple of times um, and had some some friends from New Orleans uh, filled with water. And I remember calling one of those friends who has now become, now become my wife. She was then living in Lafayette. She'd born in New Orleans, living in Lafayette, and she had people who had evacuated um, to her house. And they were obviously you know very upset. And I remember saying to her that night with a kind of, well, in retrospect, a very naive optimism. I said, "You tomorrow we're gonna get to see the most powerful country in the world, do something just unequivocally good. And it, you know, I was imagining what, what the Navy could oh. do in a flooded city. And of course, the next day, nothing.
0: It, as it turns out.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the next day, nothing happened. And the day after that, nothing happened. And so how I came to write this book in, in some ways is um, just my trying to measure the difference between the country that I thought I lived in and the country that I really do. Then of course, I went to graduate school and this is a product of a lot of sort of training and and other kinds of study. But but when I think about the core of the project, that's that's the moment for me that I go back to.
0: So tell me about how you tackled this because a lot of people have written, almost as many people have written about Katrina as have recently written about the guy in the White House Um, and uh, (laughs) a similar uh, disaster scenario. And um, uh, I wondered, you know, when you started to tackle this, what pushed you all the way back to 1915?
1: I started, and it's true, you know, I have the benefit as a scholar of just having an, an extraordinary amount of often brilliant writing about Katrina. But much of that writing comes from 2005, 2006, 2007, when in all meaningful ways, Katrina was still happening. So I wanted to approach this, Event as a historian, and try to look, look back on it as some kind of whole. And I started just by asking what to me were some very simple questions. And one of them was uh, you know, who, who lived in the neighborhoods that flooded, and why were they built? Why did people live there, and what made them so vulnerable? And as I you know, tried to answer those questions, I was drawn back to a hurricane in 1915. It's actually the largest hurricane to ever to make landfall in the 20th century in Louisiana. And this hurricane arrived in September 1915 just when the city had finished building what was then its state-of-the-art pump system. Sewage and Water Board had begun that drainage system around 1895. And the idea was to drain the marshes that or the swamps that had long constrained the growth of the city and kept New Orleans on the high ground near the Mississippi. And it turns out that if you trace the outline of Katrina's flood in 2005, what you're tracing really is the outline of the city as it stood right around 1915. Most of the houses that were built before that storm did not flood. Most of the houses that were built after that storm did flood. And so it led me to understand that, though, you know, in at least not necessarily in New Orleans, but in the national imagination, Katrina has come to be something that, you know, flooded exclusively black people as opposed to white people or exclusively poor people as opposed to wealthy people. But really to my mind, the best way of describing what flooded in 2005 is that 20th century New Orleans flooded. And so this became for me a story of 20th century New Orleans. And I had to understand that history to understand what happened in 2005. Now I wanna say just in the same breath that uh, of course what happened after the flood was profoundly about racism into my mind. And the the impacts of the water were very disproportionate in the way the flood itself wasn't. It turns out one of the things that history showed me was that the people who were vulnerable to the flood water were not the same people who were vulnerable to the recovery. I want to make sure that I <laughs> say those two parts of the book together here.
0: Yeah, well said. Um, OK. Uh, yeah. Um... Actually, in preparing for a disaster, are the seeds of the impact that the disaster has in its inequities. So, in the in the case of Katrina, as a as one example that always sticks out in my mind, um, was not getting the buses off Canal Street. So. It's, it's a well-known fact that Canal Street is low. I don't know how low. You may know. Uh, but but anybody who was thinking about having to move people out of the city, to the extent that they were thinking of that, because I'm not sure how much thought was given uh, to that. And um, because there was kind of this assumption, oh, people are going to get themselves out. If we, if we put it up on the news and we say you should get out, they're going to get out, which is Right there, a really bad assumption. And again, even that is based on an inequity.
1: Well, exactly. And, and this is where history can really be clarifying. You know, if you look at, if you imagine Katrina to be a very short event, if you sort of start your story on August 29th, 2005, then you have perhaps a case of people who were wise enough to heed the evacuation morning and people who were too foolish to listen to the meteorologists. If you peel back even just a little bit, and understand that there were 130,000 people who remained in New Orleans, and that is almost precisely the number of people who lacked access to their own cars. And when you know that you know a third of black households in New Orleans lacked access to their own cars, then you see, uh, you can explain that it wasn't a choice at all to evacuate, but really it was simply a question of who had the means. And if you you know, go back even farther in history and widen your lens even more, then you can see that over, you know, certainly since the 1950s, the federal government has spent billions of dollars building an interstate highway system that makes it comparatively very easy for people with cars to evacuate. So we've spent an enormous amount of money building structures that make it easy for some people to leave. And by the way, in New Orleans, where were those highways built? Right through the historic commercial black district on Claiborne Avenue. So we have the success of some at the expense of others. And history lets us see how those structures built over time determine what happened in the catastrophic instant. Then we just can't see that when we look narrowly at the day.
0: Um, So, you know, I often also um, use the expression that we, there were three storms. The storm before, the storm, and the storm after. The storm before, I can remember uh, this, this moment, you always remember these moments when you have some light bulb that goes off. And I can remember so clearly one day saying to my husband, you know, this city is really on a downward slope. This is before Katrina. This is not too long before Katrina. And in fact, my um, husband who makes these um, sheet metal shotgun houses is one of his culture, his uh, structural forms, and you've probably passed our house on Esplanade and seen them. He decided after Cindy, which was a little, you know, barely a hurricane that hit the city in July of 2005, you know, the big ones, we we have to tether them down, otherwise they float away. And so um, he said, uh, uh, you know, I'm just going to smash these up because the big ones coming. So, you know, what? So everybody says, Tannen, do us a favor, no more smashing of shotguns. But he, he did, he smashed a lot of the shotguns that were out in front of our house into um, uh, just flattened pieces of sheet metal um, because we just had that sense of something coming. I, in fact, had been trying to get Mitch um, Landrew not to plan a conference on the creative industries that I was involved in on April on, on August 25th, I said, Oh, don't do it then. That is almost peak hurricane season, because as a television reporter, I've covered a a storm almost every single Labor Day weekend, one way or another. So there was that storm, The sense of um, the city was in trouble in a lot of different ways. And and again, that's what you're picking up. The storm comes, um, it gets blamed on the Army Corps, which I always feel was, yeah, they deserve some blame, but that blame there's a there's a 360 degree uh, circle around it and that's what you talk about and then um, there was that storm after when people were um, both drowned waving off roofs and being rescued and not getting rescued and um, and that is what um, our opera is in part about but from your perspective of really looking at you looked at all those phases and um, what is, your, what is your perception now? The, the point of history is to advise us to the future, right? That's part of the point of history. It's not just elucidating what really happened. It is about, you need to know what really happened to inform your handling of disasters to come in the future. So in a sense, I guess I want to say, what are your lessons that you learned from what you studied?
1: a great and challenging question and I guess I'd start to answer it this way. One of the truly heartbreaking parts of writing this book and learning uh, New Orleans history and the history of of Louisiana and the history of the United States is the number of people who predicted precisely what would happen. And I don't mean just the scientists in 2004 who said the big ones coming. I, you know I write about um, the the book opens with an account of the rise of the oil industry and the key role played by this notorious racist district attorney named Leander Perez in Plaquemines parish who is is famous for as a segregationist but also was responsible for deregulating a lot of the oil development that happened in the 1930s and 1940s in Plaquemines. You know that? yeah. and I thought and and of course the the oil canals that were dredged through the wetlands we know contributed in a powerful way to New Orleans vulnerability and as a historian you know you can't we have kind of a rule as historians and you can't judge the past by present rules you know we know things that they in the past don't know but then through a lot of research I found this man named Emile Riche and I know very little about him except that he lived on Bayou Road in Plaquemines Parish and he was, a sign, he, was a, he was a painter, and he painted these big signs that he put in his front yard, and they attracted the attention of photographers. So I found photographs of his front yard from the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. And what do his signs say? Leander Perez is sinking Louisiana. Now, we know the geography of Plaquemines. We know that Leander Perez had to drive in front of those signs nearly every day as he went to and from the courthouse in Pointe of Lahash. So here's this man from the jump. From back, in the, from back in the late 1920s, saying that the political economy, the regime that you are enabling, is sinking us. You're stealing money from our pockets and you're sinking the state. And Emil Rees is not alone. I can go through, and, and in the book I detail sort of a, a number of these people, heroic in their perceptions, uh, the women in the Lower Ninth who, after Hurricane Betsy in 1965, wrote letters to Congressman Hale Boggs that I read, that said, we need $10,000 grants so that we can rebuild somewhere safer. Those letters I read, as I read them, they had been flooded during Katrina. I could barely read the words on them, but the prescience and foresight was there. And the solution was obvious to them. They knew what government needed to do to help them help themselves. And instead, what happened in 1965 was that they were given federal loans that required collateral. The only collateral they had were were their flooded real estate So federal policy forced them to rebuild in a place that they wanted to leave at that moment. So again and again, and there's many other examples in the book, but again and again, we see people who understood exactly what was going wrong and presented uh, different visions of the future that we now know in retrospect would have been, uh, would have avoided the death and suffering that Katrina has come uh, what is So what is Katrina's lesson? Listen to people, you know. I mean, at the at the end of the day, to me, the 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 real crime here is that is that mostly the organized groups of people in Louisiana, for much of the twentieth century, many many people, not all, you know. There's our our history is littered with with racists and misogynists, and there's all sorts of. um, And I don't want to diminish that those dominant views, but also there have been so many people basically been right and had humane visions for the future that were squashed by people with power. And so I think that the lesson that Katrina offers is the cost of pursuing these narrow visions of self-interest at the expense of a broader vision of the common good that actually is widely shared in New Orleans. Um, uh,
0: One small anecdote to add to your uh, stories of people who saw the future coming and besides my husband smashing his art. Um, I was out on a... near Cameron, actually, ironically. um, So, of course, I was watching Laura smash through Cameron. But I was out um, doing a story about living without energy. It was the energy crisis of 73. And I went out around the state to interview people who were living without energy. and, And I was out on the water and come across a guy who was crabbing. And I was asking him, you know, what's up? basically, just some you know rhetorical question. He says, lady, if you want to tell people what's going on, tell them that our land is sinking because of these canals. We're sinking. We're, the, the marshes are disappearing. I went back, and I tried to make contact with the EPA and find out just exactly what, I mean, in the state, the state uh, environmental folks, just exactly, well, feds and uh, state exactly what was going on what were they perceiving what were they doing and um i came across these absolutely worthless forums that were being held that were just not dealing with the issue i came to be involved later on with america's wetland and with global green and i just you know got more and more informed on the same thing but that that guy out on the bayou with his crab i've never been able to forget him saying it's, it's going away.
1: It's just... In advance of, um, before they started dredging the Mississippi River Gulf outlet, the Mr. Go, in 1957, the St. Bernard Voice, the newspaper there, ran a series of editorials in the front page, big bold letters said, St. Bernard Parish is doomed. They, and described in exquisite detail in 1957 before the first shovel of earth was moved. They said, this will subject the parish to the full brunt of tidal overflow in the event of a hurricane. It's not that people didn't know, it's that people with power didn't listen.
0: And here we are today. Um, Let's talk for a a minute about um, COVID, another kind of disaster um, that could also be foreseen to an extent and and I don't know whether you have uh, focused in on this yet and and thought about it, but it's a different kind of disaster, but the economic implications of it, the health uh, implications, the revelations, the revelations about how much more people in polluted areas suffered from this disease than others. That to me was one of the really astounding observations and and revelations that came out of this. And so, where do we go from here on on, on the value of those lessons?
1: You know, I think um, my friends who were in New Orleans in 2005 are a lot less surprised than a lot of my friends from elsewhere. They understand that the federal government can simply fail or decline to help people even from obvious suffering, I mean even from from endemic suffering when the solutions are are pretty obvious and accessible. Um, and nor should anyone be surprised that the weight of this catastrophe is heaviest on the backs of people, of black people and poor people. That is basically what America is set up to do is to reapportion common challenges on the backs of people who are already disadvantaged. And it's a catastrophe. What we can learn from it and what Katrina can teach us is is a reminder just as as we know that hurricane Katrina the storm did not cause most of the changes that we give that name Katrina you know the reason that Lakeview is largely populated in the lower ninth is at a third of its pre-flood population is not a result of the water it's not a result of the hurricane that's a result of our policy Mm -hmm. yeah and our and our uh, existing inequality and policies after the flood uh, it's not the storm itself. And in the same way, this pandemic, it's, its effects are not caused by the virus itself. It's caused by our social order that reapportions the challenges the virus poses. So I, as uh, a, a white guy with a certain kind of resume, I get to work from home. Whereas if I were working in a grocery store, I'd have to be, you know, in person every day being subjected to the virus. My body is not any more or less vulnerable, but my social position protects me." That is a very dispiriting fact, but, but we can get some hope from it if we understand that so, many, so much of our life is actually in the control of policy, and that we could make different policies that would more fairly and adequately protect people. The virus itself is not, going to, is not bankrupting you. We could create economic policies that would keep people economically safe. So I think it's important for us to not confuse you know, the disaster for the water or the disaster for the virus, The these disasters are caused by um, inadequate and cruel policies.
0: How do you come out of your um, intense, uh, um, obviously very caring examination of this history with optimism and hope for the future? And I'm making an assumption here that you have that hope and optimism and maybe you don't how do you come out of viewing this and and haven't we seen this over and over again i mean you know it's so easy for people to say oh my god this fascist who's in the white house reminds us so much of and the way people are responding to him to hitler in in post world war one germany when everybody was flat on their backs and they said anybody who came along and said we're going to you know help you um they would listen to that that's almost too easy in a way, but it's also kind of scarily true. And so um, won't this kind of disaster just keep happening over and over again? Uh, how do we break that pattern? Can we break that pattern? Uh,
1: of course we can. And, you know, when one looks for hope today in these dark days, we, I, I, of course, look to um, Black Lives Matter and the associated organization, very sophisticated, powerful political organizing with a sophisticated and powerful critique and a vision of a better future. And I also, um, I remember learning from the story of, I'll say the name of Malik Rahim here in New Orleans, who is probably familiar to most of your listeners um, as a former Black Panther and an activist who, whose life gives him every reason to be cynical about the future. And I, I, a colleague of mine Interviewed him back in 2006 when he was still at Common Ground and asked him um, how he remained hopeful, and and his answer was basically that he had to remain hopeful because if he wasn't hopeful, that would be to admit defeat. That hope is not something that you necessarily have to draw from within our history, but is imposed from without. You hope, you hope despite the situation. You hope because of the situation, because that's the only way that you can change it. And so. I remain hopeful because to not to give up would be unacceptable. Um, yeah.
0: I, I, um, I, I look so much uh, to- forward to uh, reading your book. Uh, I know that you're gonna have all kinds of wrinkles that I didn't know. I, I, I act like I know a lot of them. I do because I was working on it, but there's a lot I don't know and I really look forward to learning more and I could uh, spend the entire hour with you, but I, I, I will have a woman who's an activist who's very concerned about the petrochemical industry in Lake Charles and how the effects of it are being overlooked at the moment as they deal with um, the aftermath of Laura in, um, in, uh, um, in uh, Lake Charles and, and in the area. So that's, she's going to be the uh, other part of this uh, particular hour. Um, I look forward to uh, talking with you again. Next time you're in New Orleans, hopefully we'll have a um, uh, little bit more freedom to see each other in person. And I'd love for you to uh, meet uh, the artist who smashed the shotguns. And uh, I wish you all kinds of luck. What, before I sign off completely, what's your next project? Uh, I,
1: I, I will be honest with you, I can barely see bass tomorrow morning. So,
0: <laughs> okay. so you're, taking, you're, you're taking a deep breath.
1: Yeah, uh, taking a deep breath of that polluted air you just described. I think that's right. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on. I I appreciate the opportunity.
0: I am with two people who have, over the years, played very important roles in supporting the challenges of their communities. Uh, Reverend Bell has been working in the Lower Ninth Ward. And uh, Reverend Bell, we've probably crossed paths, because I've done a little bit of time in the Lower Ninth as well, trying to um, be involved with the re- avoiding the high rises on the Holy Cross school site. Just so you know, uh, I, I had a role in that. And um, Beth Butler, I've known uh, since I've been in New Orleans just about, and I'm not going to say how many years that is. but many and Beth has been um, an indefatigable um, community leader in dealing with the issues that are before us and right now we're kind of talking about what we sometimes around here call deja voodoo i.e in this case here we are dealing with the um, lingering disaster of a major hurricane Um, So, uh, Beth, why don't you get us started, please, with, um, I think we were talking essentially about your concerns about the petrochemical industry and the role that that industry has played, again, in making us more vulnerable to the effects of these storms. Thank you, um, Jean. This
2: program is really important because as you said, we've been through it before, but we're looking for it to happen again, and it's going to get worse. And you just have to ask yourself, as the residents of Lake Charles uh, have been asking uh, this question to us: How did this concentration of um, chemical petrochemical plants come to be so tightly knitted and planned right in their black communities, and why? in Hurricane Alley. This is, you know, if if you have some plants, why aren't they spread out? This is a question from, you'll hear from St. James Parish as well. This concentration has to be somehow situated right on the doorsteps of black neighborhoods. And they're, you know, right there on the waterways that people use for a number of you know very vital functions like drinking water, and, and uh, can, you know the contamination possibilities are endless. And of course, you get into the regulations that the they're allowed to simply self-regulate their own leaks. Th- these are you know very compelling issues, particularly at a time of hurricanes and with the fact that they're located right where the hurricanes are coming in
0: yes ma'am and um how do you maintain hope and optimism in the face of a century of and it is more than just the petrochemical industries and just so many the canals and and um really misplaced decisions about where equipment should go that would remove water etc etc just it's endless So uh, how do you maintain hope and optimism? How do you keep your energy going on this? And where do you guys see the breakthroughs? Where are they?
2: Well, uh, the day-to-day work of organizing and working with low to moderate income families uh, is the place where you'll find the hope. Because people are ready, they are willing, to be engaged and they're angry in many cases about the circumstances in their lives and they wanna make change. They just need a vehicle for it. And frankly, we've had a number of victories along the way um, that kind of help keep us all going aside from um, just the belief in the very principles of direct organizing. Many of those victories have been environmental justice victories. They're just usually um, invisible because that's not what's covered by the media. However, when you're constantly staving off industrialization of your communities and you're able to prevent, say, the expansion of the industrial canal or the Florida Avenue Freeway from coming through the 7th, 8th, and 9th wards. And these seem like endless campaigns and yet still you're winning. Um, This is hopeful. Yeah, I mean, you do have to stay organized. You do have to continue to work on the campaigns and insert them in places that you might forget about normally because it's just doesn't seem timely, but it's always timely because these campaigns have to be ongoing. Of course, we hear people say things like, you just need to work on one thing at one time, but that never really works out either because you can't work on something all at once. So you can work on it to a certain point and then you have time. We have so many environmental justice issues in, in the state and South Louisiana has this specialized set of industrialization of our communities and we didn't really think that that was what the role of government is however it turns out that's precisely what the Corps of Engineers does with our federal funds and it is precisely what the state government has been doing with projects that we thought we voted in the Constitution with our little earnest votes that we would get our bridges repaired well, it turns out, no, that was to put in a freeway from the St. Bernard Port to Elysian Fields. They tricked us. When they came to the neighborhood to explain that they were doing the environmental assessments, they told people to pick a bridge. They didn't say, we're putting a freeway through your neighborhood and taking out hundreds of homes. They said, here are three bridge designs for you. And we said, what's this freeway connected to this bridge? They said that's not what this is about. It's about the bridge, and, and we were able to take over the hearings and insert our own comments that we didn't want the freeway or the bridge.
0: That this, was this is us
2: fighting our own government. Who
0: was
2: that
3: that you
2: said? No, when you said- what? That's the state of Louisiana, the state of Louisiana Department of Transportation, and a consulting firm that they hired out of Denver to trick the residents into thinking you could have a fancy Florida bridge. And not notice that they're putting a freeway across Florida, all the way up to Fred Luter's church on Franklin Avenue, all the way to Elysian Fields at 610, where it's already so congested you can't get through.
0: Now, back to my question. So, you've had some victories, and that's important, and I appreciate that, and that keeps you going. So, that answers the first part of my question How do you keep hope and optimism going? But, um, you know, the, the level of radical change that we need to change the mindset of people in the state of Louisiana about the petrochemical industry, that is humongous. Where do you see the breakthrough in changing that mindset to the point where even the Republican legislators in the le- uh, don't have the ability to undermine an effort to address the destruction of these petrochemical plants, and if nothing else, stop any new ones from coming.
2: It is, of course, an amazingly huge issue. And I feel like, until more recently, the international and national environmental movements have sort of ignored what's happened down here. But now they're interested and we have a lot of partners. I I do think A Community Voice and Justice and Beyond are very open to and working with other groups. And as you see more of this, uh, the more the coalitions and remember what John Lewis wrote right before he died, his instructions to us were to work in common union with groups. Uh, to change these conditions that exploit us. That is what he's talking about. We are even now organizing with the Lake Charles evacuees, not just on what are their direct needs today and how quickly can we get their homes repaired, but about the uh, overbuilding of chemical plants right in their very communities and what what is the um what is the way we can make changes around this it uh, it really fundamentally does have to be local organizing it does have to be people organized the people who are affected have to have a voice and certainly all of us with the national groups and we're with so many coalitions we have to do this we have to continue to work together and In our case, uh, we're reaching out and helping train others in how to do outreach. Outreach is absolutely critical in all these efforts.
0: Are you finding, and this is, uh, I'm going to switch to Reverend in just a minute, but are you finding that trying to speak with people who either lost their homes or um, have had major destruction to their homes and their communities and they're worried about those essential issues are they open to talking about these mega issues right now it would seem to me that well it makes sense uh logically but god they've got to be so focused on how to get back home
2: well remember they're affected because (laughs) the plants do that chemical plant the chlorine plant was burning up and There are a couple of other plants that were creating problems in the area. So they're affected by that directly as well. It's just that it is the opportune time to discuss things with people. Uh, But yes, again, you don't get to pick one subject. And they are open to talking about it because they can see how dangerous it is to have all these plants together in Hurricane Alley right next door to their houses.
0: So so, uh, I would say, based on these conversations you're having and the organizing effort that you are engaged in with evacuees, your sense is that this could be an important, again, breakthrough moment when more people are going to be cognizant and willing to commit their efforts to um, be active to the point of achieving some kind of changes in state policy that will result in um, better protections against the existing plants and maybe a reduction in new ones. Mm. Absolutely. And now we have Reverend Bell with us, who has been working and living um, and, and trying to work with the community in the Lower Ninth Ward area. and. Um, once again, the lower Ninth Ward area was also made vulnerable by uh, developments um, that humans brought to the picture. I mean, it was already a dangerously low area. We know that, but um, uh, but there were developments that, again that that made things worse that that humans did. So, uh, Reverend, give me give me a little bit of a history of of of, the, of how the Ninth Ward developed and 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 some of the things that happened that made it more dangerous to live there.
3: Okay. Well, Katrina, 2005, uh, prior to Katrina, we was operating pretty good on Lower Nile. We had um, fast food. We had um, not a big supermarket, but we had the Walgreens. We had the convenience that you wouldn't have to go too much out the parish. After Katrina, We just like zero one because we don't have no more drugstore. We don't have no big supermarket. Uh, We had a family dollar, but they closed. We had a CBS, they closed. So nobody tried to mean that the city, the city council and officials, even district E, would try to bring the night Wall back on the map. We feel like we are off the map because uh, they got new developing the housing but where can you shop? I mean, people will buy these houses, but where can you shop? There's no grocery stores. There's no convenience store that you could go And I don't mean a corner store that sells liquor. I mean, a store you could walk in, do your shopping, get in your car and go to your house or maybe a little fast food like we used to have Popeye. We don't have none of that. So uh, we don't have no new inner structure in the Lord Nightwalk um school-wise we only got one elementary school one junior high and senior high school we have more people with family with kids that have to be bused across the other side of the bridge that's bad because on the corner they're there like six in the morning if i want to go outside to make sure that the kids won't be getting in trouble uh things could happen to them i brought their attention to the school board that The bus is coming there late, parents not really standing there with the kids. If you have more school developing over there, kids won't have to really wait for buses. They'll have enough daylight where they can walk to school or be dropped off to school. Um, I was told that Martin Luther King, junior high, senior high is holding the charters for schools to get built. That's not good because we have kids suffering that don't have no place but to be bused to school that means they got to get up early they get home late or not enough time to really get their lined up for the school the next day so that's bad on the behalf of the school board and also new orleans officials i said from day one maybe if we was on our own district with our own district uh council council person for just the lower nine maybe we could get better we need somebody that really lets city hall know that we still on the map sometimes we feel we part of St. Bernard Parish because all our dollar bills go to St. Bernard Parish. Uh we'll have another place to go to Walmart and St. Bernard, CVS, Walgreen, St. Bernard Family Dollar, Dollar Tree. All that's convenient that we have to leave our money to go to St. Bernard Paris. So we never have an economic growth if we don't get business in our area.
0: How do you account for uh, the the slowness of trying to bring back some of those essential elements of infrastructure?
3: Well, I fault the, um, the officials, I, I fault the mayor, I fault the city council, I fault the governor not g- coming in. Uh, as leaders, we'll do what we can to try to let our voice be heard, but until you get officials to back us and call the corporate office of Save-A-Lot, corporate office of Walmart, corporate office of Walgreens, CBS. You know, if that taking place, I don't think so because we don't have follow-up that somebody is really pressing to get uh, developing in our area. but
0: isn't it, isn't it really also a matter of the marketplace, you know, the reason why these groceries and drugstores come to an area is not so much what, what a, a, a mayor or a council does, which can help, Right. But the market's got to be there. And, and so I don't know what the current population in the lower nine things, well, you still have a lot of vacant land there.
3: Right, that's true. But if you look at the census from 2000 and look at the census from 2010, it will show less. But you look at the 2020 census, 2020 census which I wait to census, we had 62% census in. If you look at the population from 2010, 2010, oh no, 2000, 2000 to 2010, is a slow growth because you got a five year difference from Katrina to 2010. But you look at the population from 2010 to what we have now, we is back more than ever. So they can't keep using about the population not back. Uh
0: so, so, but let me, it's, it's so interesting uh, the passion we have for our city and our neighborhoods. When things are so difficult still, why come back?
3: Well, this is home. I ask my own self I've been here forty-five years in L nine, and I ask myself why I come back. Well, the reason to come back, I raised my children there when we had everything that convenient like everybody else. Uh, the reason to come back, this is my home. Uh, no place like home, as the Wizard of Oz would say. No place like home. If everybody. Maybe the city want us to ban our area, maybe they got plans for if nobody don't want to come back. We back and we still coming back and we're going to come back strong because this is our area. I mean, we raised our children, we did our community service, we did our PTA meetings, you know, we did everything, our graduations and get togethers. This home, you know, we might have lost the pictures in the films through Katrina but the memories is still with us and that's what bring us back because this is home this always will be home so that would bring you back and the ones coming back we have a diversity diversity neighborhood now uh that's a big change but i'm glad to see that because now they'll be able to see that the lower night wall is just as beautiful as the lakeview in other place we might not have the luxury as some of the up kept place but we're not going nowhere and we have to protest and walk from the lower nine wall and hold hands to city hall we would do that we had sim school that was a nuisance it was catching fire we had uh, a person got raped there uh, we had one person got mud coming off the bus stop i went there with the neighborhood and we kept marching until we got the school toned down and then I went back and said, let me test the sorrel. The sorrel was contaminated, it was toxic. We got them to dig all of the sorrel out and put fresh sorrel. You got a fence around it. So now it's not a nuisance, and people in the area could see where that, if a developer come, is coming on good soil, and plus the neighborhood not getting contaminated from the toxic that was in the soil. So this is stuff that the city bypassing, but I'm gonna go get them." I'm gonna go get it. I mean, if anything got oh. to go, I'm going. I'm going to see to his right. And so we got it torn down. Our next stop is try to get some type of schools back over there. Not a crazy thing. We have a, a school zone, say 20 miles an hour in the school zone, but no school there. So you got signs, but the school's not back. You got a park with a swimming pool, but not open for the kids. You got sand chairs open with a swimming pool, but they got to share among the senior citizens. They got to share it among the kids, and I want to take certain amount. So you got some kids cannot get in that swimming pool because it takes a certain amount of day, but if you have the other swimming pool open on first off, you can eliminate the crowds. So it's a lot of stuff the city could do is not doing. Um, and we're going to keep pressing. We're going to keep having our ashes until they hear our voice. We're the voice of the people that We're
0: not going nowhere. So you, you, uh, I I hear that. I hear that you're, you're by dint of your determination going to keep that neighborhood, uh, moving forward. And, um, I, I, I need to understand, um, what, what is your vision for what you think, let's look 10 years ahead from now and you keep at it and you have other people, of course, that are working with you that keep at it. And, and the city is probably doing more than we know because sometimes things are happening and, and they just don't publicize it until they know that they've got it done. So maybe um, there's more going on and, and eventually they'll, they'll um, you'll see results there too. So let's assume you keep going, other neighbors keep going, the city does its share. What's your vision for what the ninth Lower Ninth can be, say, 10 years from now?
3: 10 years from now, I could see us with a save supermarket, a Robear's supermarket. I could see us with a Metro Pharmacy, or maybe Walgreens come back, and maybe CVS draws the street from Walgreens, as most CVS and Walgreens compare to each other. I could see us with another Family Dollar Store. Uh, I could see us with a Dollar Tree I could see us with a Burger King and McDonald's side by side, you know, they compete. I could see us with the economic growth, the take up some of the empty, bloody lots. Um, some of the bloody is due to, some belongs to the city, some belongs to families that got three or four generation connected with it. So until we could get the city uh, and assessor office to assess these properties, and if a person owned it not keeping up the property and they letting it get blocked, it's time for it to go on the market. If the city responsible for the land that was donated from Katrina to them, they're responsible for getting that dress cut. If nola.com have some of those lot, they're responsible. So we've been trying to get a list who's responsible for the lot. But some of the lots is tied up with three and four generation of family that some wants to sell, some don't. Until the city could put um, maybe regulation on those blotting lots. Maybe we could start seeing action also. But my goal for ten years from now, if I'm here or not, I'm sixty-five years old.
0: Still um, be here.
3: Yeah, I'ma try. Um, Good young man. <laughs> I'ma try to see that these things that we our wish list come true. Of another Walgreens, CVS, McDonald's, Burger King. Uh, Popeye. Uh, There's a big supermarket where you could go shop and make your groceries and go home and put your uh, bag.
0: Right. So you've been talking a lot about the shopping and I, I understand the importance of that because I um, hate going across. I hate to have to go. I live near Tr- in Chimay and I, I really hate having to go out to Metairie to shop. I get pretty right. mad about that. So um, uh, I understand that, but uh, there was a there was a culture, a strong culture, in the Lower Ninth Ward. It's 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 where Fats Domino came from. It's where right. a lot of second line groups uh, still uh, come from. Mardi Gras Indians. How about all the culture of it? And I know we just lost one of the heroes of your culture uh, there. And and we you know we, we keep losing folks. We just right. regenerate.
3: The the ones we the one we lost that was the uh, dance. Uh, uh, he had to museum. Uh, he was one of the former ACOM committee person. Hey, that's me. All right, and we lost him. He was my 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 nephew's grandfather on my wife's side. So it was a family connection with them. We went to school with them. Um, like I say, related to my nephews and nieces on my wife's side. That was their grandfather. You're losing people like Fat Domino stayed right around the corner from my father-in-law house. His grandson, I mean, his son was always friends with my brother-in-law. So you lost Fat Domino, her house still there. Uh, you lost, uh, I think the house of dance. Um, that's who I was yeah, referring house to. Yeah, house of dance. He was related to on my wife's side. And- I mean, the, we, that's the we,
0: other thing. You, were, had, you had such extended families in the area. That yeah. was one of the things I learned about that you might have one family with 20 homes in the area
3: right um i was i was blessed to buy the next door house for me uh when it went to the lady want it, i was able to buy it. Uh, and once i purchased it i was able to bring my sister who was relocated to shreveport i was able to bring her home i was able to bring my son into the back apartment that was relocated to houston so i was able to bring back culture on my own back into the area that they was raised up in. So if you know culture mean a lot because you can lose culture when you don't have the stuff back that you know people go and relocate. But if you could bring if we could bring one person back home, that should be the motto to get one person back home. You still got people relocated from Katrina that wants to come back home, but they they you know don't don't have, can't afford it and they said well we'll come back but we don't have none down there so we got to get some developing down here to get the ones still relocated from Katrina. we still yeah. got people relocated that wants yeah. to come back home but they can't yeah and that's sad
0: well and i hate to think about how uh and i'm not, i know that you you um have probably had these same moments of thinking about after all of what we went through after Katrina, not just in the first few years, but on and on through the decades, really. Yeah. Um and, and what people in Lake Charles are just now starting out on, they have no idea.
3: Yeah.
0: Or, uh, and I, you feel for them because you know how hard it's going to be. Yeah. I think that um, there is definitely more thought having to be put into dealing with disasters and how we better prepare for them. There are those who are now beginning to talk more and more about how we should just move and get away from the dangerous areas. How do you feel about that?
3: Well, unlike this, they'll build a stronger levee since Katrina in my area. They'll build a levee wall that back up a lot of water that would try to come from St. Bernard. So our levee system had built up across the canal. Now that don't stop a barge to come in and bust the levee. Hopefully we don't have that. But for us the levee, the levee been built total. We have the brick wall that runs miles and miles up in Redden Sound. Uh, we have it where that it'll be very hard to get a flood of water through our area for us levee breaking. So we got that part. Um, most people are scared because they don't realize. They still think it's vulnerable that we could flood out. But they strengthen the levee. We have a new pumping station on Florida Boulevard that will pump the water out. Um, they've been doing a drainage system a lot over. So the part that you see not developing, right now they're doing the drainage over there. they put new drainage pipes down. They're doing the back part of the blotty to get the drainage system, the more vulnerable part, to drain that water out. Um, we got um, a wetland that's coming up St. Kofi. That's also a, a thing to drain the water too, to drain it back to the river. So we got a better drainage system and a, and a better basin to get the water out. Um, not saying we won't flood, but it'll be very hard to get a flood as we had for Katrina. If the lever wanted not never bust, we wouldn't have had the amount of water that we had. But we got a better lever system, Niner, um, pumping system, but, you know.
0: So, so I can't help but reflect on um, an interview that I had, uh, that by the time your interview runs, will have run before you. An author who wrote a book uh, called um, Katrina, a history from, uh, from from 20 from 1915 to 2015, and he's talking about all of the contributing factors that really led to um, the the extent of the disaster that we experienced in Katrina. And I said, how do you keep your hope and optimism up after reading all of the detail that you read and you learned about that we went through? And he said he he was quoting. Um, somebody else, and I don't remember exactly who it was, but I think it was a a black leader that I'm not familiar with, but he said um, that that person said, uh, if you don't have hope and optimism, then you are accepting defeat. I can see very clearly that you are not accepting defeat. No. I feel totally confident that you and the other people who are um, living in your area are going to fight for it to come back. And um, I, I think that you're going to find out that the city's doing more than it seems and, and they're going to uh, kick in. The more they see you do, the more they're going to respond. Well, we'll Beyond it, on not say- That's happening nationally now is that it has to come from the neighborhood. It has to come from the streets and the homes. And then um, they realize that you are really intentional and they'll help too. Uh, Reverend Bell. Thank you so much for your time and to all the luck in the world. And um, we're going to come and talk to you about uh, being involved in some of the other things that are going on. But um, I look forward to talking with you again in the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it some good information, maybe a little fun. And um, I wanted to let you know that we have a newsletter that goes out just in advance of the show. You can sign up for it simply by going to crosstownconvos at gmail.com. And um, it's got a lot more stuff in it, a lot more articles and images and uh, information on the guests who are on. So um, think about it, sign up if you'd like. I'm Drew Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, what people are talking about.